I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. All right, g'day, and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast where we explore challenging ideas outside of our cozy little echo chambers in the hopes of broadening our minds and being a little bit less judgmental. That's the hope. My name's Conrad, and if you're new to the show, welcome. You're very welcome to be here. And you're probably like me. You think, hey, I'm pretty open-minded. But if you haven't discovered this already, everyone who thinks they're open-minded, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're open-minded. Everyone, everyone thinks they're open-minded. Here at Ideas Digest, we try and prove, perhaps only to ourselves, that we are open-minded by exploring ideas and perspectives that challenge us and that maybe we even disagree with. So with that being said, let's jump to the clickbait. Let's trigger everybody, get some assumptions flowing. Clickbait is gangsters, dealers, terrorists. Jeez, there's a lot of stereotypes thrown in there. I need new friend of the show to join me and help me unpack some of these ideas. Dr. Michael... Muhammad Ahmed, thanks for joining Ideas Digest. Thank you for having me. And also, Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Thank you. And how would, how would I respond to that? Would I say, oh, and peace be upon you also? You can respond like that in English. That's perfect. If you okay. wanted to say in Arabic, it's wa alaikum as-salam. Wa alaikum as-salam. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> not bad, not bad. I'll, uh, I'll get practicing. But thank you, thank you for that, um, Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed. How is best to address you? You've got a few names in there. What do you prefer? I um, prefer Muhammad. So p- people think Muhammad is my middle name, but it's actually one of two first names that I have. So I have okay. the name Michael and I have the name Muhammad. We can talk about why in a minute if you want. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, but I prefer Muhammad. I like to give Australians the option. And usually if you're racist, you opt for Michael. <laughs> it's a litmus test. Well, Muhammad, dodge that, dodge that <laughs> test right there. Uh, welcome to the show. Tell me, you're in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne. Let's say we fortuitously met somewhere in i don't know what's in sydney oh the uh, some like the Oli- uh, olympic stadium somewhere around there homebush we mm-hmm. run into each other and you introduce yourself to me this the generic questions we always ask one another when we meet new people who are you and what do you do muhammad who are you and what do you do well firstly i've got to say bro if a white guy like you just randomly <laughs> tried to greet me in the street <laughs> homebush. The first hey, thing right. I'd say is, what are you looking at, bro? <laughs> um, oh, oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Don't, look at people, don't look at people in Western Sydney. <laughs> that's, the, that's the joke, right? That's, that's the clickbait joke. <laughs> no, no, don't look at people yeah. in Western Sydney. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to those, yes. uh, those um, stereotypes. stereotypes you were talking about earlier okay. in a minute. You know? yeah. um, but um, uh, if I was going to answer your questions, at, um, if I was going to pretend that I was in a good mood <laughs> okay, and that I haven't been going crazy from lockdown mm. and uh, some random person came up to me and said, you know, who are you? I'd say, yeah, my name is Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Uh-huh. I identify as an Arab Australian Muslim. I grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney. I run a literacy movement called Sweatshop, which is uh, devoted to empowering people of color and indigenous people through reading, writing and critical thinking. 
And I also happen to be a writer, and I'm the author of three novels, The Tribe, The Lebs, and my latest novel is The Other Half of You. Mm-hmm. And that doctor in front, what is the doctorate in? Um, I have a doctorate in uh, creative arts, and I, um, my expertise is also, of course, in literature, and specifically in creative writing. And um, I also spent a lot of my research in cultural theory. And I think you would find that most artists of color in Australia and around the world very rarely have the privilege of just being artists. We usually have to have some kind of expertise in something like critical race theory as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a pleasure to meet you, Mohammed. And I'm glad you stopped to talk to me and tell me about all your degrees. Uh, you know, I'm just a teacher. Anyway, moving on. Uh, I've just been judging you like everybody we meet. We meet new people. I've judged you. But I'd like to be honest with you, Mohammed. I would like to vulnerably admit and confess my judgments to your face so that you can correct them point blank. If you're wrong, you might be right about some of your judgments. So if you want, you can choose a a yes or no. If if you keep it pretty strict and rigid, people love it. They love watching friends of the show squirm in and out of the box and things like that. So if you can get close to a yes and no category, that would be, that's a point. I'm going to commit to saying yes or no, (laughs) regardless of how wild your questions are. Uh, Oh, that's good. Okay, let's find out. I'll start off with an easy one. Mohammed, you're in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne. You think you're better than me? Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, honesty is the good policy here. Good good way to start the, the show. Uh, okay, you're a writer, amongst many other things, as I've learned. Where's your next meal coming from? Are you some kind of starving artist? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I believe that you have done a bit of acting in the past. So you've got to be one of these like ego-driven... I mean, I'm surprised you stopped to talk to me. You must be some ego-driven actor. No. No. Well, you did. You did introduce yourself to me. That's, that's very good. Okay, Muhammad Ahmed, you must be a Muslim. Yes. Yes, okay. So religion, um, Lebanese origin. Uh, you must come from a segment of society or you personally... You must pose a threat to Australia and its democracy in some way. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, a few of these ones. Uh, Now, I know you, I heard you use a buzzword. I've got judgments firing off. You you said critical race theory. Mate, you sound already like this BLM, liberal Marxist, cancel culture. You're one of these lefty people. Yes and no. Oh, so BLM? Yes. Liberal Marxist? No. No. Cancel culture guy? No. Oh, you like how I wrap those up and, and throw them at you there. Mohammed, what did I miss? Did I hit any? What, did you get any or am I just like firing just some stereotypes that you never get? Um, you surprised me. Um, I had a lot of fun restricting myself to oh, just good. yes or no. <laughs> well, restrictions over. Yeah, I mean, well, we were talking about um, my education. You know, I was talking about my doctorate. Uh, any one of those questions you asked could have required its own novel or thesis, you know. So um, it was very hard to just restrict them. And um, I would love to unpack some of those questions with you. But, but you know, look, 
they're big questions. And I think there's this really interesting saying that I always go back to, especially when I'm talking to, um, right now, talking to relatives and friends who are anti-vaxxers, who think that COVID is a conspiracy, who think that the, you know, the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca is going to make you um, magnetic, you know, I, I go back to this ancient saying, to learn without thinking is a waste of effort. To think without learning is dangerous. And I, I generally think that the questions you ask me are important questions. And most people think about these things without learning about these things. And that's dangerous. I, I really think that uh, every, comp every question uh, requires serious intellectual engagement, research, scholarship before, you know, having a genuinely safe and informed opinion. Mm. Yeah, I, that has given me a lot to think about just straight off the top of the show, to think without learning. Yes, I, I'm hoping in this conversation, as we think, we'll be able to learn a lot from you and your perspective and, and where you're coming from. Um, which... what, I would like to, what I would like to say is that yeah. as we learn together, Mm -hmm. As we unpack each other's knowledge, um, we will empower each other and we will empower our audience to think better about complex issues in the future. Mm -hmm. Because I've taken a lot of very complicated things, bottled them up into a lot of stereotypes and judgments and thrown them at you. And obviously the simple yes and no really doesn't, it really communicates next to nothing. Are there any such uh, judgments in there that I've thrown at you that you'd want to just kind of unpack and clarify just from the top yeah. of the show. Well, well, sure. I mean, maybe all of them. If you want to go through them again, we yeah, can yeah. have a little bit more of an intellectual and, and, and in-depth conversation. Well, well um, I, yeah. I think the... And it'd be interesting to know how often you get this one. But mm -hmm. um, the assumption that you're Muslim seems... Yep. Um, you said yes to that one. And then so because of that, the stereotype that people might assume, and maybe I'm off the mark, maybe, or maybe I, I'm on the mark, is that you, you'd pose a threat because of your religion. Mm -hmm. Is it like, unpack that one for me. Yeah. So I, I said yes to yeah. that. Um, you know, obviously I was poking a bit of fun at my audience. Um, the, thing, the thing is this, that I find that if you look at the way in which um, Muslims in the public sector, you know, in the public space, tend to respond to the kind of fear and hysteria around us is by trying to reassure everybody that we don't mean them any harm. That's the usual rhetoric. So, you know, um, someone will say to me, you know, you guys are going to blow us up or, you know, you're all misogynists or, you know, you're all homophobes. You. Oh, oh, look, if, we wanna, if you wanted to go through the list of experiences throughout really? my life of of uh, Islamophobic statements um, directed towards me and assumptions yeah. about me, they, they can be pretty ridiculous, some of the things that I've copped. But, but, but here's the thing. It, it can actually become incredibly exhausting as a Muslim to constantly have to reassure people, particularly racists, particularly people who are, who are fundamentally racist and white supremacist in their way of thinking. It's exhausting constantly having to try to reassure those people that, that I don't mean them any harm because they mean me harm, you know? In their perfect world, um, they don't want me in this country. They don't want my family here. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I don't like to play that game anymore where I'm constantly reassuring racists that I don't mean them any harm. I see that as like a sheep reassuring a wolf that it doesn't mean them any harm, you know. 
what I would say is the opposite is you should fear me if you're a racist, if you're an Islamophobe, you should fear me because I'm going to do everything I can to stop you from being that. You know, if you love Australia being a 100% white country, for example, if you love Australia being a 100% Christian country, if you love those things, then you should genuinely be concerned about me because I don't want this country to be 100% white and I don't want this country to be 100% um, Christian. I want this country to be culturally and linguistically diverse. I want it to celebrate. I want it to be a country that celebrates its black history and that it, it, and celebrates its, its cultural, uh, its colourful cultural reality and i want it to be a multi-faith society where we where we celebrate and support um the the diversity of all religions and all uh, non-religions mm-hmm. you're describing when in that assumption you pose a threat to some way to australia you're packing a unpacking these assumptions implicit in, in in the term Australia being if you want Australia to be only white Christian and pretty homogenous and not be that tolerant of other different languages, cultures, religions, you would say if you want Australia to be like that, I am a threat to you because you're describing Absolutely. an Australia yeah. that you you want to be inclusive, multicultural, accepting of different backgrounds, cultures and religions. And so those two seem to be at and op- at an opposition to each other, it seems. I think the reason I, I say it this way is because I think that um, Muslims in Australia spend so much time reassuring people not to be afraid of us that they very rarely think, well, well, is that a reasonable is that a reasonable position to take when you are constantly the one that's under attack? You know, like Muslims in Australia are not the biggest problem right now. You know, like we have uh, there, there are five hundred Indigenous people that have been killed. Um, in in custody, you know, since 1993. That is not a Muslim problem. Like that is a problem between white Australia and the indigenous people who have been here for, you know, 50,000 years. Um, And so uh, I think that the way you framed it, it's interesting because it's kind of like me saying, yeah, like Martin Luther King, you know, he he would generally say, I'm not a, I'm not somebody to be a, to be feared. But I think the Ku Klux Klan should be afraid of him. You know, like they, they were genuinely afraid of him because he did threaten their way of life. He did threaten their beliefs. He did threaten the foundations of what they considered to be true and fair and just. And so uh, in the same way, I would say that anyone that um, is opposed to my existence and to the existence of my son, the existence of my family as Australians, yeah, you should definitely be concerned because we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this country represents us as much as it represents you. Mm. Pushing for a place where you're saying, I belong here, and if I have to push to belong here, then I will, I, like, I suppose. And bring me to this idea of your existence here in this country. The clickbait that I said at the top, gangsters, dealers, and terrorists, all th- uh, one of many themes that um, is comes across throughout your multiple books. This one, those themes, I suppose, more particularly um, explored in the beginning half of The Lebs, the book you write. Um, Explore that clickbait in conjunction with, I suppose, your books that that explore this in a very uh, unique but very nuanced way. Yeah. So I I would say it's all three books. Um, The Lebs uh, uh, came out in 2018. My new book, The Other Half of You, came out in June. Uh, the Tribe came out in 2014. And they all explore this idea of a hybrid Arab-Australian Muslim male identity. Um, 
what I would say is that this, you know, you, you make this point about it being an interesting, that I have an interesting take on it. Uh, you know, the, the stereotype of Arab Muslim men around the world is that we're, you know, potential terrorists. And I remember when I um, traveled to the United States, I think in 2010, 2011, I was actually on my honeymoon and my wife was, um, is white. So um, when we went through the gates, I remember at, in LA, at LAX, she was kind of let, let through and I was separated from her, put into a room for a couple of hours and literally interrogated every aspect of my life was, you know, jotted down. Um, and I, I got to say, because this almost sounds like a caricature, but it literally happened. When I got to the gates, do you know, like alarms went off, like a siren went off? Um, the, obviously, they had my name. So, you know, say Muhammad Ahmed. And uh, we're like, this guy's a potential threat. And so, you know, they interrogated me. Um, the, I, so, so that's a kind of global perception of us, that we are a, some kind of uh, terrorist threat or terrorist suspect, uh, simply because of my name and the way I look. Um, now, in Australia, things get a little bit more nuanced because in addition to that terrorist suspect narrative, you also, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, started to hear stories about Arab and Muslim men, specifically from Western Sydney, specifically under the all-encompassing term Leb, um, which explains the title of my book, The Lebs. Um, we're, we were also being pigeonholed and demonized as um, local menaces. You know, um, there was a series of gang rapes that took place in the year 2000 in which... Um, all 13 of the, of, the, of, the, of the rapists were identified as being of Lebanese and Muslim background, even though they're all Australian-born, and even though the religion of Islam had nothing to do with the assaults. Um, we saw numerous stories of uh, drug dealings, drug busts uh, that were being uh, attributed to specific ethnic and specific Arab and Muslim crime. And we were seeing things like drive-by shootings. I remember I lived in Lakemba and there was a police uh, police shooting of um, there was a drive-by shooting of the police station in Lakemba, which made national headlines. And again, the language was this is a Lebanese gang. So you hear that rhetoric and that 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 stereotyping of Arab and Muslims as inherently predatory, and you see this kind of folk devil emerging. Uh, one minute we're a, a, a gangster, the next minute we're a sexual predator, the next minute we're a terrorist suspect, and it, go, it goes back and forth. Now I want to say two points on this. Firstly, um, it's not to say that these things aren't necessarily true. There, there, there have been, you know, Arab Muslim male terrorists. Um, the, 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 the boys that were involved in these sexual assaults, the SCAF gang rapes in the year 2000, were from Arab and Muslim backgrounds. The drive-by shooting that took place in Lakemba uh, against Lakemba Police Station was perpetrated by a Lebanese by members of a Lebanese uh, uh, by members of a gang who were from a Lebanese background. Those things are all true. But what's interesting is that when these crimes happen in Australia, we racialize them when, when the group is indigenous or Middle Eastern background, but we don't racialize them. We, we don't say we have a problem with white men when white men commit terrorist uh, attacks like we saw in Christchurch in 2019. We don't say that white men, we have a problem with white men or we have a problem with Christian men when white men commit sexual assaults, which Australia has a very long history of. Um, we, don't, we don't say that white men are the problem when there's a shooting that involves a white male. So for me, it's, it's about talking about the racialized element of this antisocial behavior when it comes to minorities. You're, de you're describing this power of category that it is not applied to a white Australian group, but then is applied as the broad brush to then go, if this, if this person was Muslim or from Arabic descent or 
from Lebanon. Then we go, oh, it's a Lebanese gang problem mm. or it's a Sudanese gang problem. And and so it, you're, you're, it sounds like you're describing the category and the categorization of the individual to the group is this racialized or racist component just because if there's a, a, a white bogan who's jacked a car and keeps doing it, that's just a delinquent teenager or someone who's he he become he's an individual and you're you're mm. describing this categorization of every other group that's lumped in together because of the characteristics of the yeah. other individual. Is that is that so in so yeah, so the way cultural theorists would describe it, if we we're gonna be really uh, straightforward about it is in Australia, whiteness is normalized. So uh -huh. white crime isn't called white crime. It's just called crime. Right. But, um, but uh, people of color, indigenous people are racialized. So you would say this is Middle Eastern crime. There is literally a crime squad in, in that was established called the Middle Eastern Task Force in 2006, which was specifically designed to target Middle Eastern communities in, in Western Sydney and in, and in broader Sydney. I mean, that's the most racist thing you could possibly imagine, actually. Um, but there's another element to this, which I was talking about, because I said there are two, two points. So the first is about the racializing of these communities, but not to pretend like the there aren't problems there. There are, um, but they're uniquely racial, racialized with certain minorities. But the other point I wanted to make is that even though there are problems, um, the problems are nowhere near as serious as they are made out to be. So, you know, they're, they're heavily sensationalized uh, through the media and the political rhetoric, usually because some politician is trying to win a campaign or some, uh, you know, journalist is trying to uh, push a, a, an agenda. It's usually a right-wing agenda, uh, you know, fear-mongering, war-mongering, for example. Um, and so th there's one element that people tend to forget, which is the element of performance. And this is something I try to get into in all of my books. It's that um, you, it's just assumed that the, my, the men that we're talking about right now will instinctively defend themselves against the stereotypes. They'll instinctively say, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not a, a drug dealer. I'm not a gangster. I'm not a terrorist. But actually, there's a, there's a phenomenon called protest masculinity, which is the, um, the assertion of a symbolic assertion of power and aggression to compensate for marginalization. The, the idea here is that um, usually, uh, you know, working class men, usually men of color, but even white men participate in this, they'll assert a type of, you know, uh, performative dominance. Uh, as a way of dealing with the scrutiny they're receiving. Uh, so, for example, in at Punchbowl Boys, the high school I went to, which, of course, you would know, I write about quite a lot. Um, the boys would put terrorists on their jerseys, you know. They would, um, they would pretend to be gangsters. They would literally tell girls that they were gangsters who could get guns because they, they, they found it empowering to promote this uh, narrative about themselves that they were hard, you know. I remember um, they would pretend... That, that like so you know every now and again like we'd get a bomb threat at the school you know at punchball boys someone would call in and pretend that they, they they're going to blow up the school and my friends would always tell the girls in the next school that they were the ones who did the bomb threat you know uh they would pretend they would play up the stereotype as opposed to pushing up against it because and i'm going to put this really simply the girls in the next neighborhood found it hot you know and so I think it's really important to understand the nuances here that um, in some cases, these stereotypes actually come from a legitimate place, but in other cases, they're, they're literally exaggerated, not just by the media and the politicians, but by mm. members of the community themselves for all kinds of reasons.
Yeah, that's a level of complexity and interconnectedness that I think is always missed in almost every discussion I've heard on this on this topic because you're describing uh, the potential statistical reality that some people will commit crimes, terrorist attacks will happen, and these people will come from these different areas. But when they come from this group, it's going to be, you're saying, exaggerated um, and uh, the broad brush is used to, to paint everybody in that yeah. community as being, I suppose, a th- potentially to be like those other people or responsible for those other people because of the con- cultural connective tissue that's there. But then you're talking about how this story that I suppose pervades well, probably Western news or Western kind of stories, the folk devil, as you put it, it, it goes into the kids that are growing up in these areas that might identify as lab or identify as um, gangsters because, yeah, you're, this this interplay of the story being told and then them embracing the story and then people go, well, see, look, they even claim to be like this. So who are we to not perpetuate the story? And it seems to be like uh, this this, mm. this web of this wheel just keeps going. Yeah, I mean, so the, so there's a couple of things there. Um, firstly, are they, <laughs> there's some cops. They're coming for me. Um, <laughs> um, the, um, the first thing is um, that term, the idea of it like uh, perpetuating itself. The, the, I do write in my thesis, my doctoral thesis about collusion. Mm. In 1998, um, the, um, a journal, two journalists from the Daily Telegraph came to a group of boys from Punchbowl, my high school, you know, young lab boys. Um, and they asked those boys to pose as gangsters for a um, for a front page article, and those boys posed as gangsters, and they made up these those teenage boys who actually went all went on to university and you know became small business owners and things like that. Um, they you know told the journalists this story that they were um, able to get a gun easier than buying a pizza, and that was the headline: dial a gun. Gang says it's Lebanese gang says it's easier than buying a pizza. Um, but see, it's, the reason I call it collusion is because those journalists absolutely knew for sure that this is not a professional organized criminal gang. What stupid criminal gang would reveal themselves like that and put themselves on the front page of the newspaper? It certainly wasn't the gang that shot up the Kemba police station, which this headline came out in the context of. It certainly wasn't the gang who shot the young Korean boy, you know, in Punchbowl, um, Edward Lee. It was uh, it was a group of kids who were just uh, taking the piss, making fun, but the, but the, the the boys knew that and the journalists knew that, but they still slapped this on the front page of the newspaper. And so what we see is, um, I think for for different reasons, members of a community, whether it's the members of the dominant white culture or members of the minority Arab Muslim community, are p- participating in a narrative that um, serves certain agendas. But what I think is really important, we see this in the United States with, uh, you know, men of color, you know, black men, um, uh, uh, Latino men, for example, is playing up the stereotype. Uh, What Bill Hooks is an important cultural theorist calls becoming the beast, you know, instead of subverting it, they kind of give in to the the narrative instead of trying to um, just constantly um, uh, put it at bay and, you know, be seen as a good boy. That's the first point. The other point I want to make is about um, the the going back to that conversation we were having about the normalization of whiteness and the way we racialize particular communities in relation to something like crime. Uh, I was thinking about the, uh, the the Christchurch massacre. So for anybody that's forgotten, I hope we never forget. But for anybody that's forgotten, 2019 in March, 
um, an Australian-born white supremacist, uh, entered two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and slaughtered 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, Friday is the, it's kind of the equivalent of the Sunday in terms of prayer for Muslims. So it's the, the most sacred day of the week. Uh, and he injured, you know, dozens of others, maybe even hundreds. Um, and so I remember the news headlines in relation to uh, that crime uh, was literally a picture of him as a baby. And the news headline was something like, um, you know, angelic boy becomes monster. You know, the, the word angelic was in there. And it's so interesting the way in which the white Australian media tried to humanize this monster. You know, this is a human being who's slaughtered 51 innocent people with, mach with machine guns, you know, in a mosque. In a, you know, they were so vulnerable. Like, you know, you go into the mosque, you're barefoot, you know, you're in your garb, you're praying. Um, you know, he slaughtered women and children as well as men. And yet we still had this image of him as, a, as an innocent child who was an angel. Uh, now, contrast that to the way the, uh, the, SCAF, the members of the SCAF gang were being, were being portrayed in the, in the media. Um, Bill Scaff was the gang leader. And then you had other you know, members who were uh, from Arab and Muslim backgrounds. And I remember headlines written by Miranda Devine, who's a, you know, quite a well-known conservative uh, journalist. Uh, you know, the headlines were like, Lebanese Muslim boys uh, hunt for girls they deemed Aussie sluts. You know, it was a completely um, dehumanizing of the entire Arab and Muslim community. Through, through this kind of rhetoric um, and completely racializing these crimes and also um, creating a kind of narrative that in, is intentionally designed to um, make members of the dominant white Australian culture afraid of every single Arab and Muslim and frame us all as uh, members of an inherently misogynistic, uh, sexist, and patriarchal cult. You, the themes that, that come across in, in what you're talking about is what story is being told ab about people. How does that story play into someone's identity? How do how does society in general see that person, whether it's an individual or the identity as part of a group? Walk me through, I suppose, and whether this connects to your journey or not, the journey of being Arab Muslim Australian mm. in this country with the stories of identity being told about you and your group and how that goes, uh, you or the character in your book moving through that and unpacking this, what sounds like a very complicated <laughs> amalgamation of forces that go into the development of somebody. Look, you've hit the nail on the head. This is the perfect question, you know, that question of identity and how mm. you navigate that as an Arab, a Muslim, an Australian. I mean, what does all this stuff mean? What do all these terms and labels mean, you know? Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I want to take a bit of time to unpack that. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in how it relates back to my books because you brought up the labs. Uh, I feel like the other half of you, which is my new book, it, it really talks about it in a, in a more tender way, just for anyone that's listening that's interested in the work. Mm -hmm. The labs is kind of seen as a very confronting, really gritty experience of that story the other half of you it's written as a letter to my son uh, his mother is um anglo-australian his father's arab australian muslim and so you know he's been raised in an uh, an intercultural and interfaith family 
And so I, I very much wanted to talk about that in, the, in, in, in the, exactly the same way that you're asking these questions. I very much wanted to talk, to answer some of those questions to my son who's going to inherit this world and talk, you know, talk in a kind of more tender way about how, um, you know, how we're going to navigate this world. You know, how the next generation is going to navigate the world, the world they're going to inherit, a world that, you know, uh, very much is looking like it's going to be destroyed by things like climate change, nuclear war, um, global pandemics, racism. And so um, these are, I think, important conversations to have. And I I approach it both in a tender way and in a um, a, a kind of confronting way. Uh, You know, my work is always um, standalone, but they also work in an interconnected way. And so... I, I very much hope that people will take the time to read the work because there's only so much we can talk about in a, in an in an in an hour. And I would say that as a creative writer, I, I do it in a way that's very entertaining, you know, so that it's not just a kind of huge onslaught of academic research and, and references. Now, to answer your question directly, um, I think that there's two amazing phenomenons that took place after September 11 that goes past a lot of people. The first is why the term Lebanese became so heavily uh, affiliated with with this particular group's ethnic particular ethnic crime in in Australia. Why why it was specifically the term Lebanese? And so um, th- this is the two the two ways to understand it. Firstly, because um, if you look at the the way the global Muslim threat was internalized after 9/11, it differed in each country. So in, in the UK, it was really the term, it was really the idea of the Asian. Uh, in Australia, we, we wouldn't even say Asian, we'd say South Asian. But in, in, in the UK, it was like the idea of the Pakistani was, the, was what was imagined when they thought about the Muslim threat. Um, in uh, in uh, Germany, it was, the, it was the Turk. It was Turks who were seen as the Muslim threat. In the United States, it was, a, uh, it was the Saudi Arabian. You know, the Saudi was the image that con- was conjured up when we talked about um, the 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 Muslim threat in relation to 9/11. So when when you if you want to ask Americans what do you imagine when you think of the terrorists, they would see a Saudi. Generally speaking, when you asked uh, Germans, they would have seen a Turk. When you asked um, uh, you know uh, people from the UK, they would have said, I, I see a kind of Pakistani image. Now in Australia, in the same way that this phenomenon was playing out uh, playing out. In Australia, it was the term Lebanese that became the, the embodiment of the global Muslim threat. So we use the term Lebanese as a kind of symbol of our fear of all Muslims. We use it as a symbol of um, representing Arab, Middle Eastern and Muslim communities interchangeably. That's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is why this term Leb to me is so unique. Um, yes, it was, a, it was a kind of metonym for the, for the global the, the way we understood the global Muslim threat in Australia. But I grew up in a neighborhood where the term Lebanese or more precisely Leb didn't necessarily apply to people from Lebanese backgrounds. It wasn't, the word Leb wasn't being used as shorthand for, uh, for Lebanon or Lebanese. It was its kind of own category. It was own identity that was uniquely Australian. And so, for example, I had friends who were Indonesian, who were Malaysian, who were Turkish who were then from other parts of the Arab world, uh, you know, Jordan, Palestine, Syria, Afghanistan, um, uh, Iraq, who, and they would all just say they were Lebs. So it had become this kind of unique Australian category, which was identifying a particular minority in Australia and a particular subculture in Australia. Hmm. This, you're, you're unpacking this one word, Muslim, that all over the world 
points to different things depending on the context on which it's used and then specifically saying and in australia the th- the muslim threat would be characterized no personified as the leb that's perfect that's a perfect way of articulating it personified so you become the 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 idea of lebanese became the embodiment of uh, the muslim threat um, and a, a perfect example of this is in 2005, 5,000 white Australians marched on a beach in, in Cronulla, chanting things like, no lebs, fuck off lebs, right? But in terms of who they targeted when, when, when the Cronulla riots happened, they pretty much targeted anybody they could find that was of Middle Eastern or Muslim appearance in what they imagined a Muslim to be or an Arab to be. You know, and, and that included people who were from Bangladeshi backgrounds, Afghan backgrounds, a very serious incident that took place on a train. Um, and that was a very famous photograph that was taken by a photographer named Craig Greenhill, who was inside the carriage when this happened. They just went and found, you know, that the rioters marched onto this train expecting to find a gang of Lebanese people to fight. They found these two random guys, these two brown guys who were not from Lebanese background, and they beat them nearly to death, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, the photographer was in the train at the time snapping these photographs. And I, because I interviewed him and talked to him after the, the riots, he talked about, he, by the way, he won a Walkley Award for that photograph. It's a very iconic image. Um, but he talks about how he literally had to put his camera down, start screaming about how these, how these rioters were going to kill these two innocent brown guys who happened to be on a train because of their proximity to what we would understand um, as being Lebanese, not because they were Lebanese. And so, yeah, we have to see this as a personification. I use the term, you might have heard me, you might remember me using the term metonym, which is a kind of more literary term. Um, but the idea of the metonym, it's a type of metaphor where the the where a part can represent the whole, you know. And so the, the Lebanese communities are a part of the Muslim community. And so they come to represent the whole of the Muslim community in the context of mm. Australia. Yes, because as you're, as you're describing, the Muslim community is global and wildly diverse in culture, practices, um, even probably different variations of Islam itself. I, I, I'm hearing what this end result is of these stories being told, this personification of a group of people um, into one stereotype. It ends in this level of tribalism. And I wonder if you can unpack how connected the story that's being told is to the tribalism that happens on both sides of the split and the rupture that happens when a story says they are not one of us, they are not Australian, they're lebs. And then Mm. this rift comes in. And then you're describing this almost embrace of the story for other reasons by Lebanese Australians going, yep, we're lebs, and embracing that in the ways in which you're kind of talking about. And then the white Australia side of it, going yep see we told you and then now this mm. now we have this tribalism we have well different religions different and, and we can never kind of get along as as at its at its very worst massacre in new zealand and in cronulla when one group goes you look like you belong to that other group you're not one of us tribal violence yeah. so this is so interesting because um, you know, we're talking. Let's let's down the Cronulla riots because that's how we can answer this conversation. I think the the, the Cronulla riots was probably in recent history the, the the biggest example of tribalism playing itself out among other factors. Um, I think nationalism was a huge factor in it as well. Um, 
So let's stay on the Cronulla riots. So recently, the former prime minister, John Howard, who was the prime minister at the time of the riots, we're going back to 2005, said that he does not think that the Cronulla riots reveal that Australia has an underlying race problem. There is always this argument coming mainly from the right and mainly from the white right that we don't have a race problem. Uh, Australia is very good. White Australia in particular is very good at denying the, the, the problem of race in this country, denying the genocide that was committed against the indigenous population, denying the very blatantly racist policies that are constantly being implemented against refugees, against certain countries that we choose to invade, against certain countries that we are sympathetic to. We are sympathetic to, to the United States, which is on the other side of the world, but we're not as sympathetic to, to countries that are much closer to us and that we should have really good relationships with, like, with, like Indonesia and China, for example. Um, and so it's very difficult to have conversations about this in Australia because uh, members of the, the dominant white culture like to participate in a, in a, in a phenomenon of gaslighting where they try to sweep it under the rug. The best example I can give of sweeping it under the rug, uh, you know, uh, when sun, you know, sunrise, I think it was uh, channel seven ran a segment on whether it was a good idea to have a second stolen generation. And they had three white panelists who were talking about how they should have a, we should have a second stolen generation. Um, and one of the panelists said it was a no brainer. Uh, you know, referring to Indigenous people. They were talking about forcibly removing Indigenous kids from their families. And they were talking about it without any Indigenous representation to speak back. Now, when Indigenous people uh, were very upset about this, uh, rightfully so, they protested the next day um, outside the Sunrise headquarters. Now, theoretically, you should have been able to see that in the, in the, um, in the window. What, what the, uh, what the, the the show you know the producers of the show did was they used old stock footage to to make it look like it was just a kind of sunny day in the background and that there was no protesters behind them that is to me the perfect example of how white australia deals with racism they just pretend it's not happening you know they just uh, you know they put a screen uh, behind it and say oh look everything's fine now i want to go back to cronulla because this is where things get a little bit interesting um you know, uh, there's that really famous movie and play, Puberty Blues, and it's set in Cronulla. And if anyone who knows Puberty Blues uh, has watched it, we, we, don't say, we don't say it's un-Australian. You know, we don't use the language un-Australian to describe puberty, puberty Blues. We describe it actually as the quintessentially Australian text. Now, if you watch that, what you see is young white boys going down to the beach literally harassing, sexually harassing the girls in one particular incident in the play and in the film. I, I would argue that it's a straight-up sexual assault against one of the girls. Um, you see epic scenes. The Kind of the most iconic scenes in the film is these young white boys, these young surfer dudes, literally brawling with the lifeguards. Now, what gave rise to the Cronulla riots? Well, if you ask the rioters themselves, they would say it was it was two particular things that the young Lebanese boys who were coming to the neighborhood, I say Lebanese like this because, of course, um, that's a very um, eclectic term. But for, you know, for lack of a better word, let's say the, the, the Lebs, what the, what the rioters were saying is that the Lebs were coming down to the beach and they were sexually harassing the girls and they were picking fights with the lifeguards. And this, this, this behavior was being described as un-Australian. Now, just think about the irony here that a quintessentially Australian play, a play that is iconically Australian, is about young white boys sexually harassing girls at Cronulla Beach and picking fights with the lifeguards at Cronulla Beach. Whereas when the Leb boys, the Lebanese Australian boys, do the same behavior 
it's it's described as un-Australian and it gives rise to a race riot. Now, I'll tell you why this happens. Because we have pretended, and, and I've talked to enough of these people, I've interviewed enough of these people who are involved in the riots to know that the way they frame it is about bad behavior. They say the behavior is un-Australian. But what I would argue as a scholar who's done a lot of research into this area is that it's absolutely not the behavior that is being seen as un-Australian. It's the race that's being seen as un-Australian. That's what is creating the tribalism. It's this downright direct racism that we are unable to admit is the driving factor in so much of our, of our way of thinking about different communities in Australia. It seems to me like the line that we are drawing these tribes between is almost implicit in the word Australia that you're using. So when someone says that's un-Australian, that word Australian can encompass a lot of different people, a lot of different cultural backgrounds, religions, all of these things, or it can uh, implicitly imply the opposite. White Australians, a certain textbook stereotype picture of Australia. So it sounds like when someone's using... In that scenario, in the criminal rights, when they're using the word un-Australian and it results in riots and bashings and lots of hectic stuff, it sounds like in that instance, it's the interpretation of that word Australian that is it that a lot of people hear and go, yeah, see, un-Australian, jump on a tram, two brown guys, un-Australian. And these, these connections in there that it's very hard to unpack when it's just one word and someone goes, no, it's, it's un-Australian. Everyone's Australian. We just want Australians to love each other. Like that's totally fine. But uh, you're pointing to something like something implicit yeah. or how people hear it. And then, then that, and it sounds like that's the race problem you're talking mm. about. Australia kind of has this very subtle, uh, hard, Look, to, hard to face. Yeah. So it, the most interesting thing about the term un-Australian is that it, 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 it Technically, doesn't make sense. Um, Australian, what is Australian behavior? It's whatever Australians do. If if Australians beat up lifeguards, if if Arab Australians who were born in Australia go to the beach and they and they get into a fight with the lifeguards and they beat them up, that's now a part of Australia, whether we like it or not. If um if a, if a, if an Australian-born white supremacist goes to Christchurch and, and massacres Muslims, that's now Australian behavior. That's an Australian phenomenon now. Um, Australian is whatever we do now. The, so the, the question is, what is an what is an Australian? That's the actual conversation. And here's here's something interesting that the anthropologist Gassan Haj, in, a, in an important essay that Gassan Haj wrote called um, "Multiculturalism and the Ungovernable Muslim," he argues that the behaviour that uh, white Australians found so irksome that they were describing as Lebanese behaviour um, was actually, in its own way, a quintessentially Australian behaviour. And this is what he argues, is that there, there was one of the things that Ghassan, you know, Professor Haj uh, found in his interviews is how much um, uh, people would talk about how the, these lab boys that were going and getting into these problems had no shame. You know, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Picking, harassing the girls, picking fights with the lifeguards. And Ghassan's observation is that, no, they don't have the shame because they're very much at home. They're, it's not the problem. Isn't that they're un-Australian? The problem is that they're too Australian. They feel very entitled to the space, and they feel very comfortable to come, to go down to the beach and to behave exactly the same way that the white boys behave, and exactly the same way that we see those boys behaving in um, in uh, texts like Puberty Blues. Now, the reason for that is because they're Australians, and they have a strong sense of being Australian. 
Yes. The, the, when the term un-Australian is being used, you're describing it as this Australian narrative externalizing the problem. But if we are to say that they're born here, they're raised here, they've, they've been steeped in Australian culture their whole life, we would prefer the collective white Australia, we would prefer to say, oh, well, that's, that's bad and we can easily identify it looks different to the stereotype, which is that implicit racism you're talking about. We can say, oh, well, Muslim community, can you please reprimand that? Can you please deal with this? Uh, Muhammad, could you please speak out against this problem? Whereas it sounds like what you're saying is there is such a thing as Muslim Australians that are unique to Australia and have developed specific traits because of the Australian culture they've grown up in. So you don't get to then externalize the problem once it becomes quote unquote un-Australian because it is all Australian. I don't know if that kind of tries to sum up what this idea you're talking about. I think this is the reason why the media rhetoric bugs me so much that when Miranda Devine says Lebanese Muslim gang rapists, you know, um, I, I would say, for example, that those boys who you're, you're pigeonholing as Lebanese Muslim, and that's a way of trying to frame it as that's the problem. You know, I I grew up with those boys. You know, three of those boys actually that were um, that were convicted of the SCAF gang rapes went to my school. The thing is this: they were not on Friday. You know, we we're talking about Friday being the most sacred day of um, of the Muslim week. On Friday, they were not at the mosque. You know, doing their Friday prayers. I'll tell you where they were on Friday nights. They were at the football games, where. Their white Australian heroes, who were the football players, had, you know, so many of those players had been implicated in sexual assaults over the last 20 years, you know, since the gang rapes took place. Um, those boys were not listening to Muslim FM when they were being driven to school with their mums and dads. They were listening to people like Kyle Sanderlands. You know, I remember Kyle in 2009, there was a young girl who was interviewing who said she'd been raped and he asked back, uh, is that the only sexual experience you've ever had? That's who they were listening to. You know, um, the, their leader, their leader, as much as white Australia wants to convince themselves that their leader of the Muslim community is our is the Mufti, the boys that I grew up around, their actual leader is their prime minister, just like uh, just like that prime minister is responsible for every Australian. He's responsible for um, <clears throat> for Muslim Australians. And, you know, I think about the shocking misogyny that we saw from um, people like Tony Abbott towards Julia Gillard when she was prime minister, you know, the, the language, the incredibly misogynistic language that was being used to frame her. And, and, you know, Tony Abbott becomes our prime minister, you know? And so this is my point is that it's not to say that these boys are not predators, but what gives rise to this kind of predatory, you know, sexually, sexually predatory behavior among all men in Australia, I think we have to have a much more serious conversation. And, we, and, and I think, we, you know, why Australia needs to take some accountability and responsibility for this and, and stop trying to racialize it and just say, this is a problem of Muslim culture. We don't have a problem in our culture. Mm, you're really pointing out the scape that minority groups within Australia, cultural minority groups, are the scapegoat so that a dominant Australian culture that's largely still white doesn't have to look in the mirror at those examples you bring up. Oh, every NRL team ever, a lot of AFL teams, Parliament House, 
masturbating on female MPs' desks. If we get to externalize that as a you problem, as a Muslim Arab problem, then we don't have to look in the mirror. We get to just say that's their problem. And that, that behavior is inherently misogynistic in its own right because it doesn't, it doesn't seek real justice for women, hmm. you know? And that's the, that's the bottom line is that when you use sexual assault as an excuse for racism, it's not only that you're abusing a minority group, you're also deliberately not seeking out the justice for those victims and you're not seeking out for, for future victims because you're not in any way interested in actually identifying what the actual problem was and and addressing that actual problem i should also point out you know the scholarship on this is uh unanimous there's not there's no there's not much debate on this uh you know this kind of behavior that we're just we're talking about whether it's arab muslim men or whether it's white men whether it's a, a person from a uh, from a from a religious group with christian or muslim or or somebody who identifies as atheist the the, the problem of of patriarchy, misogyny, and sexism, we identify in all cultural groups. And we also identify that it's learned behavior. It's not behavior you're born with. It's not behavior that's natural. It's behavior that men, generally men, teach other men. And so it is something that can be changed because we, we, the research has shown that it's not a natural condition that men, that men and that's an, an old myth that has been debunked time and time again, but it's not a natural condition. It is something that we can address. And that we can change, but but in order to do so, uh, men have to actually uh, start to become more honest about what's causing the problem. Yeah, you've you've made it very complicated in diagnosing whatever the problem is that we're necessarily identifying there, and the the narrative people encounter when they enter this conversation about race, religion, and Islam in particular, the simplified version the easy to understand version is that islam's the problem there's this religion and it's this religion that breeds terrorists and this is the way in which it's framed but for 56 minutes now you've spoken about a whole myriad of different complex societal socio-cultural factors that all fit together this very complex picture so it's probably very challenging because you've broken you're stepping away from a very simple narrative that we've been handed. Islam's the problem. And here's what I think of these factors going mm. into why people behave this way. And Australia's actually involved in this and it can have a hand in, in um, moving against it, or it can just ignore it or externalize it and say, it's, n- it's not yeah. part of us. What would you pull out as to why would you step away from the framing of Muslim as the religion as being the connective tissue for all these problems. Um, well, that's the the probably the most obvious question. It's also um, the silliest question. You know, like I I I really enjoy talking to you. We've talked before, um, and so you know, I'm I'm happy to have that conversation, and I'm happy to answer the question. Um, but but the reason I say it's the silliest question is because it's kind of absurd um, to even think about. Uh, Islam in such a way, you know, like I'm, 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 that's, that's my answer. It's just so you know, I'm not saying I'm not going to answer it. That's my answer. I'm giving the answer. Right. So the thing is this, that, you know, you're talking about 2 billion Muslims. When you say Islam is the problem, you're talking about one in four human beings. You're talking about um, a community that is so diverse and so eclectic that you literally can't 
really say Muslim as a community or a group and and expect it to have any real weight, you know, unless it's it's being propagated by a Fox News narrative that's deliberately being used as an excuse to decimate Iraq, you know. That's usually how we use Islam in a kind of general way. But if we're, if we're trying to have a serious conversation about Islam, we can't really talk about it that way. We're talking about 2 billion people. I can tell you that the diversity of the Muslim community just in Western Sydney is incredibly complex. You know, the Muslims in my neighborhood have such different ideas, live such different lives, have such different uh, politics when it comes to gender, race, class, sexuality. Um, try to imagine then how different the Muslim community's worldviews are, the diversity of opinion. When, when, you're not, when you're looking at Australia to Indonesia to Turkey to Saudi Arabia to Afghanistan to uh, Iraq to Palestine to Lebanon, it is such a diverse uh, uh, experience that mm -hmm. it's almost a mind job to try to comprehend it in one go. Mm -hmm. So to continue asking the silly questions that I think is always the linchpin in these conversations, it's, it's these questions that people have and they go, so, so I'd ask you, like, what's being missed to continue asking those silly questions? Because they would say, but Muhammad, it's in the Quran. It says, you know, like the woman should wear this and that's very uh, like harmful yeah. and oppressive and, and people are reading it that way. And, you know, look at Saudi Arabia, look at uh, like Afghanistan, Iraq, look at like these regimes that are really oppressive to freedom of religion mm. and democracy and women oppression and homosexuals like how, what what am I missing? What what are they missing when yeah. they ask that question? What's that? What's that thing that say the Sky News Andrew Bolt commentator doesn't understand when mm. pursuing that line of questioning? Because you've 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 demonstrated an alternate, more complex and potentially deeper way of unpacking all this. But what is being missed from bringing over the person that's still on the religion as the connective tissue? What what's yeah. not understood? Um, a lot, actually. Uh, more than I could probably unpack, but I'll try. Yes. Um, okay, so if we're talking about, say, for example, Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, this, is a, this is the most extreme country in the world, you know? Um, there are there, – and it is it's, – its population that is, doesn't make up even 5% of the Muslim world. It's a – you know, it, it, it's not – it's literally not representative of the Muslim world. And it's literally not representative of, of the Muslim religion. If we're talking about, I, I choose it Saudi Arabia because it's the one that always comes up. It's like, look how bad it is in Saudi Arabia. It's like, but I have no business with Saudi Arabia. I and the majority of Muslims on the planet have serious problems with Saudi Arabia. You know, it's not just like white people have problems with Saudi Arabia. Muslims, you know, the majority of Muslims look at Saudi Arabia and go, this place is insane, you know? Um, but then if we look at places that you brought up as well in, in, the, in the list, you, you talk about countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, uh, Iraq is where, we, where, the, where, where algebra was invented. You know, our, Iraq had the first universities, had the first hospitals. If you look at the renaissance that was taking place in Iraq in, uh, you know, the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, it, it was very much the catalyst, the foundation for the renaissance that took place in Europe. Most historians argue that, that the, the European Renaissance could only take place because they, the, the, the Europeans had come in and taken the scholarship from the Arabs and the Muslims. And mind you, had, had taken the, those ideas without crediting it. Um, and so when we talk about modern day Iraq, what we're talking about is a place 
that has been utterly decimated by the West. You know, when we talk about Afghanistan, um, you know, if you go back through the history of Afghanistan as well, it was an incredibly progressive, sophisticated society. What happens is, in the case of these two countries, because they've been they've come up, the West comes in, creates a incredibly toxic situation. They literally created ISIS. They literally created the Taliban. You know, um, the United States government created bin Laden as a kind of Frankenstein monster. They gave him guns and money. We're talking about, you know, Jimmy Carter and um, Ronald Reagan, for example, literally creating these environments and then watching this Frankenstein monster take control of a country, decimate it, destroy it. And then, um, and then the West steps back and says, look how barbaric and savage those people are. It's, it's Islam's fault, you know? Um, when if you look at the, the influence, the positive influence that Islam had had on those parts of the world before the West had begun to meddle in it, you begin to see a much clearer picture. The same can be said for uh, places like Palestine, if, if, you would, if, if you're even willing to admit that Palestine exists. I mean, uh, what, what do you expect from a, from a Palestinian kid, Muslim or Christian, who grew up in a garbage heap? What, what kind of ideas do you think they're going to have about Islam when their country has been stolen from them, when they're regularly being bombed, when their relatives are being decimated? It's, it's hard for me not to believe that they're going to end up with incredibly radical opinions on, uh, on, you know, on particular communities and particular ideas. Now, if we're talking about Australian Muslims, well, are we talking about a middle-class Arab Australian Muslim who went to university? Their views on, on things like sexuality would be pretty progressive, you know? And, and you, can, you can see almost exactly the same statistics as you would see on the Christian community. If you're dealing with an educated, a university-educated, left-leaning um, Arab-Australian Muslim who has an arts degree, they, are, they were going to vote yes when it came to something like the same-sex marriage debate. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with a Muslim who is illiterate, uneducated, incredibly conservative, they're going to vote no, just like a lot of Christians in Australia voted no. Um, and so... Again, the only way I can counteract the Andrew Bolt and Fox News style, you know, conversation about Islam is to continually stress the diversity, to argue that you need to look at the, the history of particular places, that you need to actually understand. And we haven't gotten into this yet, but we, we, we actually have to talk about literally what the Quran is saying and, and the, the various interpretations. I mean, you made the point on some people saying, but the Quran says this, right? And here's, here's my counter argument is like, I don't know if the Quran actually says anything, you know? Um, what I know about the Quran is that it's a it's a book. It was um, we believe that it's um, the word of Allah of God that was transferred from God to the Prophet Muhammad in the fifth century via the Archangel Gabriel. We have these words, you know. We have a book of signs. The interpretations of the Quran there are literally millions of interpretations. There are literally hundreds of interpretations on sexuality in the Quran. So, the, the, you know, if anybody, anybody, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, said the Quran says you have to, that women have to cover up, I don't know if, if, the, if there's ever been a point in history where that's actually been agreed upon in the Muslim community. I don't know if there's ever been a point when it's ever been stated Muslim women must cover up. Um, what I would argue is that if you asked a thousand different Muslims, what the verses in the Quran mean when it comes to something like the hijab, you might get a, a thousand different answers. Hmm. The one point that I would make on, on, on something the Quran says that is important to me is that there are no compulsions in Islam. Nobody is compelled to do anything. Nobody is forced to do, to do anything in Islam. Uh, you know, and I stand by that. I, 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 the, the Muslim women that I 
have in my world who wear the hijab choose to wear the hijab and the Muslim women who don't choose not to wear it. And I think we have to fight for the right of women to have both, actually, uh, to, to be free to make that choice. Yeah, it's interesting that by what authority do I get to say to you, here is what being Muslim means. And it sounds like that's the conversation that happens, let's say, for the, the hard stereotype of the Sky News, Andrew Bolt type um, embodiment of white middle class uh, Australia. In a way, he's saying, no, no, this is what Islam is. And what you've just, I suppose, demonstrated to anyone listening, whether they agree or disagree, is just how nuanced, complex, diverse this whole topic is. To So to the takeaway I'm getting is to enter into that frame of reference and that way of approaching this topic is, is almost futile. You just kind of expose uh, some level of ignorance, some level of me going, yeah, Muhammad, what would I actually know about the Quran? I'll, I'll be honest, mate, never read it. Um, but then when someone, you know, brings up the Bible or something, I grew up Christian, I go, well, I know, I know a fair bit about that. And so it's the things we know a lot about that when someone makes big sweeping claims about them, we know where they fall short. And I suppose mm. what's coming across is just how ignorant like myself and probably a lot of white Australia would be on just how complex the history, the geopolitical situation of the different countries being used, the different theologies surrounding um, the Quran and interpretations and the history and how it's come through and, and all those things. So, so, in, so in some way, to enter into that conversation, as shallow as some portrayals of it might be, seems, I don't, it doesn't, it just seems like, it, it's, it's almost... Uh, it's more, it's, it's just, literally stupid. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you're stupid. Yes. I, I actually think you're an intelligent person. And we oh, have, thank you. <laughs> we've had a couple of conversations now and we've always had intelligent conversations. Mm -hmm. But it's literally, I mean, I, I'm actually quoting a scholar named Reza Aslan mm -hmm. who says, I, I mean, he says this seriously. He says, it's literally stupid to talk about Islam as an all-encompassing term. It doesn't, it, it's too diverse. The community is way too eclectic. Um, you know, we don't have a centralized figure like the Pope, that, you know, and, and a Muslim is anyone who identifies as a Muslim, you know, and because it's anyone who identifies as a Muslim is a Muslim, um, you're going to end up with, a, with with literally millions of different interpretations. I mean, the, the I mean, I work in the arts community, so I work with a lot of queer Muslims. I, I work with a lot of Muslims who identify as gay and practicing Muslims who I will, will pray shoulder to shoulder with me at the mosque. And so if somebody said to me, your religion is bad because it says that homosexuality is forbidden. I'm like, well, go and ha go and say that to the queer Muslim poets that I'm working with, who are literally work, you know, who are literally reconciling their faith and their sexuality and are identifying with both. You know, I I just again this point on like it's stupid. It's the it's the fatigue that a lot of Muslims feel having to constantly explain that any conversation about Saudi Arabia has zero to do with the experience of being an Arab Australian Muslim in the 20, in, in, in the year 2021. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, my concerns about Saudi Arabia would be pretty much the same as every other Australian, whether they're black, brown or white. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your journey then to uh, the solution for all of this. It sounds like what you've said there is saying we end up in the conversations we end up 
in. We end up in the tribes we get pushed into. We end up in the stereotypes that are pushed upon us because of an oversimplified, ignorant portrayal of something very complex and very nuanced. And we're all actually a part of the formation of this story. It's not just you don't get to delegate who's in and who's out. What's what's your journey to the, to I suppose the the work you're doing now and this topic? That's a really thoughtful question. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I don't think any individual Muslim can speak on behalf of the entire Muslim world. We can't. No Muslim can can show you the diversity of the Muslim community. What I think can each Muslim can do is show their own personal experience. And for you know, for an intelligent human being, for an intelligent human being who's not a Muslim, if you're just seeing the, the, these different personal experiences, you in your mind will gradually put together a picture of, oh, this is a diverse community, and um, my presumptions are wrong. I, I use the word presumption. Another word to use would be prejudice. The, the word prejudice derives from two two words actually pre which means before and judge you know or judgment so uh, uh, the word prejudice means to prejudge someone to judge them before you know them and that's literally what w- is going on with any conversations about the muslim community in australia or anywhere in the world we're talking about prejudice we're talking about judgments that are being made about two billion people before you know those those people so here's the good news there is a way that you can get to know us. I mean, of course, I always get those nice, you know, the nice white guys. Like, I've got Muslim neighbors and they're really nice people, you know. But but I believe in that. I, I really do believe in the power of that, that statement. You know, it, it can be a bit condescending and a bit frustrating. But I can also appreciate the idea that you have a real life experience with a fellow human being and you can just see them for who they are as humans. And I, I make the point human explicitly because I feel like so much of this rhetoric is about dehumanizing us. And that's, that is intentional, you know? If you are going to illegally invade a country like Afghanistan, the, the, there's more and more evidence that is mounting that the invasion of Afghanistan was a big mistake, of course, but that it was not motivated by getting rid of the Taliban or making that place a better place. It was, it was probably motivated by extracting their resources and not really worrying about what the consequences would be. Um, after 20 years, it's a worse place than it was when, when, we, when, when Australia and the United States and the other countries invaded. So the, the, the desire to dehumanize us has a very positive outcome for warmongers. It, it, it makes it easier to go into those places and invade and take their stuff because you don't worry about these. These are non-people. They don't have feelings. They don't have families. They're not human beings. They're crazy. They're savages. They're barbarians. Uh, if you can create that kind of narrative, then it makes it a lot easier to get people behind you if you want to illegally invade that nation. So um, how do we create a, how do we start the process of humanizing so that we we actually begin to love our Muslim brothers and sisters you know as 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 one people as a human race well I work in the business of writing and I I've always believed I, I mean I, I it's fundamental to my beliefs that um, that I, I I I try and encourage people to read you know I, I genuinely believe that that will fundamentally uh, transform the way a person thinks. I, I build this on the, um, I, I mentioned the cultural theorist, Bell Hooks. Um, Bell Hooks argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy will determine how you see what you see. And I, I think this is a really good example of um, 
the importance of reading. It's, it will determine how you see, in the case of uh, reading Muslim literature and Arab literature, it will determine how you see Arab and Muslim communities. Now, uh, the exciting part is, what is some of the Arab and Muslim literature that I would recommend? Of course, we've had the opportunity to talk about my books. If, if you took the opportunity to read my books, you'll get to know my family, you'll get to know my son, you'll get to know me, you'll get to know the people that I've loved. I mean, yeah, I told you that my partner is a, uh, the mother of my son is an Anglo-Australian woman. And so you, you get that kind of really personal experience of what it's like to literally be inside an Arab Muslim male's head from Western Sydney. Uh, some other really important books that have come out this year, I would recommend Amani Haydar's The Mother Wound. Uh, this is a really important book because uh, her mother had tragically lost her life to domestic violence at the hands of her father. There's also a fantastic book by an Egyptian-Australian Muslim writer named Sarah Al-Sayed called Muddy People. And um, of course, Randa Abdul Fattah has written a really fantastic book called Coming of Age in the War on Terror, which looks at the last 20 years of the experience of being Arab, Arab and, and more specifically Muslim uh, since the September 11 attacks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it's um It's been really good to have you unpack uh, some of those ideas and obviously an hour and a bit is you, 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 you encounter just how short time is when you go into something as deep and as complex. But I feel like you've been able to shade a lot of the areas that were previously just a clear cut black and white and, and give it some, um, a lot more color and depth. If someone's reading your book, what do you hope they see? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's a really good question because a lot of people read my books and say, but hey, I thought you were all about breaking stereotypes, but in many ways you reinforce the stereotypes. How do you, you do know? that in your books? Well, um, for example, I don't shy away from the predatory behavior in my community. Hmm. You know, the young men in my, in my books, you, you've read the lebs mm -hmm. um, and books like the other half of you. You see the young men participating in misogynistic behavior. You see them participating in homophobic behavior. You, you see them. I mean, we've talked a lot about the racism that my community experiences, but you see them uh, practicing racist attitudes and behavior themselves. You see them uh, enabling uh, violent and extremist ideas and enacting violence, uh, in some cases, religious violence. You see all that. Th th this is how I feel like I subvert the narrative. I'm not interested in telling a positive narrative. I'm interested in telling a complex narrative. I mm. feel like the problem when you look at the Arab and Muslim community uh, in Australia and around the world is that you have a very one-dimensional image of us. You have an image of us that portrays us as, in, in the case of men, I mean, there's, there's conversations to be had about the portrayal of women. Um, and, you know, I've listed three incredible Arab Muslim women writers from Australia that, um, that look, that have more expertise in talking about that area. And I, I strongly recommend checking out Amani, um, Randa and Sarah's books. Um, but talking about the image, the, the, the one-dimensional image of the man, I mean, we've already talked about it, this folk devil, you know, the image that you get of Arab Muslim men is that we're terrorists, that we're sexual predators, that we are um, gangsters and drug dealers and, uh, uh, you know, members of uh, organized uh, gangs who participate in drive-by shootings. That's the narrative you get. And I find it one-dimensional. It's a, it's a caricature of who we are. I'm not interested in uh, telling a a one-dimensional portrait that is positive to counteract a one-dimensional portrait that is negative. I think they're both bullshit, to be completely frank about it. What I'm interested in is uh, providing a an honest and complex portrayal of who we are. That includes some of the shortcomings in our communities. And I, and what I the way I think this subverts the narrative is by representing our humanity. 
what does it mean to be a human being? You know, if it's not to be flawed and beautiful simultaneously. Hmm. Muhammad, you've given us a lot to think about and deeply complexified ideas that perhaps maybe some of us listening thought were just pretty simple and clear cut. Uh, is there anything you, you might want to add to, to finish up on something you didn't get to or anything you, that's on your mind? Yeah, um, there is one thing. Because um, it, I, I wonder how um, anyone that's given us the honor of listening to this full interview will feel by the end of it. It can feel kind of depressing, you know, like to just and, and I think that's why the right has become so uh, so uh, aggressive in its attempt to shut down conversations about things like critical race theory. Um, because I feel like the left and members of the left and minorities on the left can tend to sound incredibly negative a lot of the time. And it can make, it can make you feel a little bit hopeless. Um, and so what, what I, this is a, probably the best way that I can wrap up this conversation is that um, I am a pessimistic person and I do have these conversations with a sense of despair, a real despair about conversations like the mistreatment of Indigenous people, the deaths in custody, real despair when we talk about things like Christchurch. But here's the thing, you know, the last couple of years have been incredibly divisive. Um, you know, COVID has given rise to anti-Asian violence, a significant amounts of anti-Asian violence in Australia and around the world. The Black Lives Matter movement has risen, uh, has raised serious conversations about the mistreatment of uh, of black communities and indigenous communities. Um, we've we've had hard conversations about um, uh, the situations in places like uh, uh, Palestine and uh, Lebanon and Afghanistan that's unfolding right now as we speak. And so it has felt like an incredibly divisive time. But I want to say this, and, and this is always something that I, um, that I, that I genuinely believe. Like, you know, in, in my heart, I, I actually believe that uh, we as a, as a species can survive it. I, I actually do think that we are able to come together in uh, solidarity and in unity. And I think there has been uh, examples time and time again when that's happened. I remember um, after Christchurch, our non-Muslim Australian brothers and sisters were gathering outside the mosques to guard it, you know, um, and, you know, holding signs saying, I'll keep watch while you pray. I, I saw um, the best in Australia when our nation came together to vote and to fight for the right of every Australian to be free to, to marry, to get married to whoever they loved, regardless of who that person is or what gender that person was or uh, what sexuality that person identified with. We have seen time and time again that we are at our best and our most united when we stand together in solidarity as a nation. And I, um, I, I, wanted to, I would say that uh, the book that I've written, the last book, The Other Half of You, um, it, it's really about that coming together. You know, it's a, it's a letter written to my mixed-race son. And um, it's a letter that is in some ways talking about the challenges that we're going to face as a species. But more importantly, it's about the idea that uh, when we come together in acts of love, we will be able to survive it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a heavy conversation because it's a hard indictment on looking in the mirror as Australians. And I think one of the themes that comes across is saying, you, as an Australian, 
are critiquing Australia and therefore indicting yourself in the same breath because people might be listening going, oh, he's just picking on Australians. Oh, white people have ruined everything. But I think what's come across is that the is that you as an Australian is critiquing the nation that you belong to, that you are in and moving moving that forward in, in the ways that, that you can. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you get told all the time when minorities speak out, they get told that they hate their country. Why don't you leave? Um, you know, uh, black Americans get told all the time, you know, you, you, you hate America. Um, I, as an Arab Australian Muslim who is critical of some of the problems in Australia, am told all the time that I hate Australia. Um, it's, the reason why I think it's interesting is because I actually think Pauline Hansen hates Australia. If you really want my opinion, like, I, you know, she, she's all, she spent 25 years talking about how we're, we, people like me are ruining Australia and, you know, we need to go back to where we come from. Um, and, and anytime we have conversations about this country, specifically in relation to racism, that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a demonstration of how much we hate this country. Um, but, but I, the reason I say that uh, actually Pauline Hansen is the one that hates Australia is because what am I doing when we have these conversations? What am I doing except exercising the best aspects of Australia? You know, I'm, I'm uh, living in a country where I am free to speak and that's what I'm doing. I'm exercising my freedom of speech. Um, I am living in a country where I am free to practice whatever religion I like and I identify as a Muslim. I am living in a country that, that claims, that says that it is a multicultural society, it is a successful multicultural society and that it loves multiculturalism and I bring some of that cultural diversity to this country. I love this country and I love those things about this country and I love practicing those things as an Australian. But it's people like Pauline Hansen who hate those things. She hates the fact that um, that I'm, as an Australian, get to identify as a Muslim. She hates the fact that as an Australian, I get to say whatever the hell I want and that I get to use my rights as an Australian, my rights of free speech to criticize the government when they do the wrong thing. Um, she hates the fact that I get to speak more than one language at home, that I get to teach my son English and Arabic, you know? And so it's, it's people like her that hate Australia. And so what I say to people like her is, it, it, you're the one who hates Australia, so you're the one who should leave if you don't like um, this country and all the wonderful things. I love this country and I'm not going anywhere. Because often the answer to that same question, when it's like, love it or leave it, and, and I'll be honest, no one's ever said that to me. And boy, do I critique governmental policy and write a few letters every now and then. And no, no one's ever said that to me. But the, the funny thing, I, I suppose, is that the answer to that, oh, well, Conrad, why don't you just leave it? Muhammad, why don't you just leave it? The answer is the same. And go where? Where would I go? This is where I'm from. And this is how I'm seeing things. Muhammad, you've given uh, everyone a lot to think about, a few different frameworks to sit with, digest and, and, and play with. Where can people find your work and follow you and stay up to date with what you're doing? Thank you so much. So if you're interested in the work I do through Sweatshop and you want to check out some of the publications we're producing with the amazing culturally and linguistically diverse people that we're working with in Western Sydney, visit the Sweatshop website. That's sweatshop.ws. If you're interested in my books, um, the, the Tribe, The Lebs, The Other Half of You, literally, if you Google those titles into a search engine, you will find them all over the country. And you can also find them in every single, hopefully every single bookstore and every single online bookstore in the country. If you've made it to the end of this episode and you disagreed and it triggered you and you're like, I, I, can't, I can't stand Muhammad. I can't believe he thinks that he hates Australia. But you made it to the end of this episode. 
then you, my friend, are the spirit of Ideas Digest. That's that's a that's a, a feat of sheer willpower listening to something you disagree with for this long that you've earned yourself a golden emoji medal. Send me a DM. I'll send you a little emoji, a gold medal to show my appreciation of you being a friend of the show. Muhammad, thanks again for taking so much time to join us here on Ideas Digest. Thank you. And I also would like to finish as we started by saying assalamu alaikum. I say assalamu alaikum to you and also assalamu alaikum to our wonderful listeners. Thank you so much. 